Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I don't know if you've ever heard this statement before, but... uh, Jody and I, when we would go look at houses uh, some years ago, uh, there was this phrase that kept coming up from realtors and other people that they would say, a house has good bones. I have to admit, I have no idea what that phrase means, right? A house has good bones. I think it's a statement about uh, the structure of the house. It's framed well, supported well, the foundation, the floor joists. But it occurred to me that it's like the, the worst condition that the house was in, the realtor would say, but this house has good bones. It's like the front door is falling off, but it better have good bones. See, this morning as we talked through, uh, structure is important. Uh, years ago, I remember hearing uh, about this collapse of a bridge in Minnesota. I don't know if you remember that. It was probably 10 or 15 years ago, uh, but lots of uh, hurt people, uh, injuries, maybe even death. I can't remember, but it highlighted a growing problem with bridge, bridges and infrastructure in our country. It's a reminder to us that what we can't see with the naked eye is very important. The things that undergird the structures around us, the things in wa- the ways in which things are built is immensely important. See, in the same way, churches are to have a particular structure. And if that structure is ignored, people are in danger. See, as we come to Exodus chapter 18, I think we're going to see this to be true. That God has structured his people with an intercessor and a faithful servants in support. God has structured his church with a central intercessor and then a network of servants who also work in support of that. God gives us these statements and these analogies. We'll get into these a little bit later about God has given us like a body. He's given us a temple. He's he's made us into these things that are many parts, but brought together in one entity. And this morning, what we want to talk about is why structure is important. And it's going to be kind of a, a different way of kind of getting there. We're going to break this down in two different sections. In Exodus 18, verses 1 through 12, God's deliverance brings his people together. God's going to invite his people together as Moses starts to tell the story of how God delivered uh, Israel from Egypt. And then in verses 13 through 27, we'll see the section we just read. uh, In that section, God's gathered people need supported leadership. And we'll talk through that a little bit. But I want to start in this morning in Exodus 18, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to start with this idea that God's deliverance brings his people together. Look at Exodus 18, verse 1 with me. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all the good that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. That's a lot for a name, isn't it? Verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came in with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. 
And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to, to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with the elders also of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Saying, what on earth is happening here? There's so much going on. And this is uh, a kind of a reminder. This isn't the first time we've met Jethro. Jethro has actually been already involved in the book of Exodus. Uh, verse 2 tells the story a little bit of, of kind of Jethro's involvement in Moses' family. But as Moses' father-in-law, Moses was leaving the land of Egypt, and he came to this camp, and he defends these the poor shepherdess women who are trying to get water. And sure enough, like they invite him back and lo and behold, Jethro gives a daughter to Moses for marriage, right? It's, if we're single guys, we can take that home, right? They defend a, a maiden at a well somewhere and you're good to go. But this is what happens here. And so sure enough, Jethro and Moses are kind of bound together. Now, uh, later there's some tension later on in Exodus 4 when uh, Moses and his his wife are traveling back, and God confronts Moses for not uh, circumcising his kids. And so Zipporah, and uh, she takes a flint knife and circumcises one of their children, and it kind of stays the wrath of God. It's a crazy, crazy story, but uh, it seems that Moses was confronted by God for having not circumcised his children, not been faithful to the promise. So Zipporah takes this flint knife, circumcises them, and, and her words in verse 25 of Exodus for ring with us. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. See, now Jethro sends warning to Moses that he's bringing the family back. He's bringing Zipporah and the two kids back. This reunion is about to happen. But notice God's deliverance is the occasion for this reunion. So in verses 7 through 12, Moses kind of retells the story of, of Israel's deliverance from Egypt and Jethro rejoices over it. We look at verses 10 and 12 there. This is what's happening, right? Uh, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. And he responds and he's blessing God and he offers this sacrifice and the elders of Israel are coming together with him. See, here's what we see in this passage. And this is kind of hidden underneath the, the cloak of this passage is that uh, this actually reminds us of something that's already happened in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham's family member Lot is captured and taken captive and carried away with a bunch of other uh, kind of captives there. And so Abraham uh, gathers 300 of his servants and he goes and hunts down this army and he delivers all of these captives. And so Melchizedek, who is a priest and a king of Salem, comes and blesses Abraham and the God who Abraham serves. Well, the language that's stated here reminds us of that passage. See, both Mel, I'm going to call him Mel because I don't want to say Melchizedek, Mel and Jethro, they bless God 
for the delivering. There's a slide here that we can pull up. See, Melchizedek, look what he says in, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 20. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now look at the phrase from Jethro. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. See, we have the same phrasings going on. Both are recognizing God's blessing upon these individuals and recognizing God's delivering work upon these individuals. And it's worth noting that both of these men are priests, priests outside of the order of Israel. They're not priests that are descendants of Abraham. They're not priests out of uh, some kind of Jewish tradition. These are priests from outside of the people of God, recognizing God's power and authority, his delivering work. See, the upshot of these stories is praise for God from unexpected places. This is the the first fruits of the nations experiencing blessing through their connection with Abraham and his descendants. They're coming back and they're bestowing blessing upon God through the works of Abraham and Moses that God had accomplished, right? And notice this is just one sign of what's happening here that as Moses continues to tell the story of God's redemption, more and more people start to gather. Jethro comes when he hears the story of God's deliverance in verse four, four or verse one and verse six. And Jethro brings Moses's wife and kids in verse six. And as they continue to tell the stories of God's deliverance to Jethro, uh, all of the elders of Israel start to gather around as Jethro makes a sacrifice to God. See, the more they tell of God's deliverance, the more people start to gather around. I don't know if you know this, but some of the greatest structures, they they gather different, uh, uh, falling water. Have you ever heard of that? It's a Frank Lloyd Wright home. It says that they have 135,000 visitors come to this Frank Lloyd Wright home. There's about 1.2 million people that visit the Guggenheim Museum in New York City. Every year, seven to eight million people gather to see the Taj Mahal. See, great structures gather people. God's grace is a structure that gathers us together. One of the most important things that happened in recent years is a critique of Western Christianity, and it's this emphasis on individualism. While it's true that we are individually responsible for God, for how we trust in Him, and and it's on us, and we pay individualized consequences for distrust. It seems like we might have overstated this at times. It's a reminder that when we read the scriptures, there's a community, there's a you allness to the scripture, not just a you individually. So we've atomized Christianity. And now we hear particular statements that I think would sound strange to saints that went before us. We, we hear things like this. I think what this passage means to me, or I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I've heard people say that. Or my version of church is to be done alone in the woods. I've had that statement. I've heard that statement made by someone who was an elder of a local church. You see, we have these atomized, individualized views of Christianity But when we read the New Testament, when we read the Scriptures, incorporation into Christ, it means incorporation into His body as as the church. You see, the gospel was meant to be like a a warm fire. You might uh, just imagine this morning for a second that you go to Chicago on the coldest day of the year and you start a barrel fire. 
just wait and see who shows up. The one thing that's in common for all of these people is the need for warmth. See, the the church gathers around Jesus because we all have need. And the more we speak openly of God's grace, the more it's like this barrel fire that gathers all of these different kinds of people together, that gathers them around the warmth that binds them together, that they need warmth. We need Christ. What happens here is that Moses quickly finds out that all these delivered people need to be led All these people that that God has entrusted to Moses, that God has miraculously delivered, now they need to be led. They need particular structures and uh, disciplines in place, right? How are God's people, those gathered around the fire, so to speak, supposed to be led? How are they supposed to be cared for? And so we see this in verses 13 through 27, that God's gathered people need supported leadership. Look at what he says in verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to uh, judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, well, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times, even great, uh, every great matter, um, they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place place in peace. Jethro starts by asking a question. Why are you leading alone? Starts and he witnesses Moses's everyday life, his day in and his day out, right? And we see this this contrast that happens in verse 13, right? We see that Moses is sitting while everyone else around him is standing. It was just the last chapter that Moses was, so the plan was that Moses was to go up the hill during this battle, that he was to stand on the hill, that he was to raise his hands. But he was too exhausted, so he had to sit down, and the two brothers around him held his hands up so that Israel could win the battle. But now, here, Moses is once again seated. Everyone else is standing around him, and the picture is this. It's this utterly exhausted Moses who spends morning until evening deliberating on issues, who has to sit while anyone with a problem from all the nation of Israel will gather around around him and tell him about their issues. And so Jethro poses this question in verse 14. 
seen. What is this that you are doing for the people? It's as if to say, help me understand, explain this to me. In verse 14, he says again, why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around from morning until evening. I notice two items that are part of Jethro's question that kind of sh- like point us at his intention. First, he suspects this kind of lone wolf tendency with the word alone. Why do you sit alone? Secondly, he points out the exhaustion of the longevity of the day from morning until evening. Je- Moses, why are you sitting alone all day long deliberating in this way? Why are you doing that? Moses gives a good answer in verses 15 and 16, or I could be wrong, verse 25. Nope, 15 and 16, excuse me. Because the people come to inquire of God. It's a good answer, right? Moses responds back in verse 15 and 16. He said, no, they come to me and and I go and speak to God and then I come back to them with answers. I'm kind of this go-between. This is a very necessary thing to do. He speaks to God and deliberates their issues. He is God's representatives. Thus, he weighs in on all of their disagreements. Now, you just got to remember at this point, there's no Bible, there's no law, there's no handbook, there's no uh, kind of manual on how to handle all of these situations. There's just Moses who talks to God and knows God. And so if you've got questions, if you've got a problem, you call Moses. You sit with Moses for an hour and you talk about your problem and what's happening and Moses deliberates for you. See, Jethro, in all of his wisdom, though, comes back and he points out a problem. He says this, that leading alone is a short-lived solution. Look at verses 17 and 18. Look at what he says. Verses 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Jethro says, this isn't good. We just stop there for a second because it should kind of prick something in our mind. Back in verse 9, Jethro rejoiced. Verse 9 says, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done. And now Jethro is saying, this is not good for you to what? Be alone. Does that sound familiar? Does that prick up your ears? This is straight from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right? Genesis 1, God is creating the earth, and at the end of each day of creation, he pronounces it good. He said uh, God made the heavens and the earth, and at the end of day 1, he created it and called it good, right? But then when we get to Genesis chapter 2, Adam is alone, and he's supposed to name all of the animals. There's male deer and female deer. There's a male dog and a female dog. There's all of these things, but it was not good for Adam to be alone, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. See, what Moses is doing here is he's cluing us in to say, this is kind of a restatement of what's happening here. We might stop and think, oh, that's why That's why his wife came back at the early part of this chapter, because she's his helper. He's in need of a helper. He's overwhelmed. He needs this wife to come in. But that's not Jethro's answer, is it? It's a reminder to us. God has specific roles, men, women. 1 Timothy 2 is very clear about this. Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. We believe here that that God has limited this role of eldership uh, to men specifically. And it's not because women are inferior or anything else. It's just because 
God has given them different roles. We're created in this kind of interdependence. One of the roles that females have is childbirth and child rearing, stated right there in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And one of the roles that men have is is leadership and structures within the church. So what happens then is, is Jethro suggests a course of action, that this wasn't good, and his solution is to provide helpers for his servant Moses. And so he offers a wise solution in verses 19 through 23. It's leadership with support brings longevity. Look at verse 19. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them known, uh, make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people who, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you. And they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people will go to their place in peace. Moses is to keep doing what he's doing. That's what he says in verses 19 and 20, right? You shall represent the people before God. And then in verse 20, you shall make warn them about the statutes and the laws. Moses' role is twofold. He's to interface with God on behalf of the people, and he's interface with the people on behalf of God. That's his role. He's this intercessor, as it were. And so Jethro advocates for these two ongoing tasks to happen. In other words, Moses, you've got to keep doing what you're doing. But you need to entrust some of this work to faithful men, to qualified men. Notice the qualifications, right? Uh, Look for able men, verse 21, from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. First, these people are to fear God. Second, they cannot uh, be untrustworthy or they can't be ones that can be bought with bribes and so on and so forth, right? If the first question's in place, they genuinely fear God. The second thing isn't even a question, is it? But it's kind of a qualifier that shows the first thing to be be true. Uh, Truth be told, if this first qualification is on point, if they truly fear God, the second qualification will naturally fall in its place. And so Moses directs them, or Jethro directs them, uh, to set up these uh, chiefs over thousands and over hundreds and over fifties and over tens. And the big questions are supposed to kind of work their way up to Moses. And the small questions are supposed to be dealt with at the ground level, as it were. It kind of works like our court system, right? Uh, 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 we might introduce legislation in a local court and it works its way up to regional and all the way up to the Supreme Court eventually. That's what Moses is doing here. And so then in verse 23, he gives this faith-filled vision for what the outcome of this be would be, what the, the future would look like. Look what he says. He says, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. God will direct Moses. Moses will be able to... Um, Moses will be able to um, speak... On God's behalf, excuse me, I just lost my place in my notes. 
Moses will be able to endure. And in fact, what that's what it says there, that, that word endure is actually to stand. It's the same word that's been used in the last few chapters that Moses will finally be able to stand up. He's had to sit down through his task through the last two chapters. And Jethro's coming to him and saying, this is how you stand up. This is how you endure, Moses. This is how you last. This is how you have longevity in this role is by doing this thing that I'm calling to you to. And then finally, he says that Israel will prosper. They'll go to their place in peace. Jethro promises peace to the, the Israelites and miss Moses's faithfulness. And so what happens in verses 24 through 27 is that Moses carries out Jethro's plan. Look at verse 24. Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all the people and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and hundreds of fifties and of tens. And they judged the people at all times and any hard case they brought to Moses, but any smaller matter they decided themselves Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Any of us who have in-laws know that that's the best part is when they go away. Okay, that was a joke. Just kidding. I love my in-laws sometimes. Moses carries out this plan, doesn't he? He takes Jethro's advice. He finds these capable, able men. And he entrusts this work to them. They establish this hierarchical structure. And and Moses then can feel at home to let his father-in-law go. So what we have in Exodus 18 is a people who need an intercessor, right? We have people who need to hear from God. And people who need someone to speak to God on their behalf. Moses was inevitably this go-between, the one who spoke to both God and man, the one who deliberated with Israel and took their concerns into the tent of meeting before the presence of God. But Moses was just a man. And Jethro's telling him, hey, if you continue in this pattern, if you continue in this way, you're just a man. You're just a person of limitation. Jethro's telling him, you will not last. You will not make it. I don't know if you've Remember this, but a few years back in June 2021, the Surfside condominium in Florida collapsed. Uh, you heard all these crazy stories about somebody who you know, goes to open a door to an apartment and all of a sudden they're just looking down into this wasteland of this crashed uh, condominium that was there. I looked it up and this is authoritative because it came from Wikipedia, so you can believe everything that's here. The cause was long-term degradation of reinforced concrete structural support in the basement-level parking garage under the pool deck due to water penetration and corrosion of the reinforcing steel. Now, every engineer just like they perked up, like they just got really excited about that. What it means is the foundation went away. The foundation started to have cracks and and different problems with it. And the first sign uh, about 15 minutes before the whole thing collapsed is the pool actually drained. That's a bad sign, right? Like there's no water in the pool. So it just reminds us that foundations matter. Structures matter. When you build any structure, it has to be solid and dependable. It has to withstand the test of time and not wear down or, or compromise its integrity. It has to be able to be there day in, day out, kind of performing its function. And Moses is learning that he can't do that, that if he's going to be the foundation of this structure of this nation, it's not going to work. He's limited. But it's the wisdom of God this morning 
to build his community around an intercessor. Look at Moses' role in verse 15. The people come to me and inquire of God. Moses was to hear from the people. Moses was to interface with God. And Moses was to direct the people. Moses is at the center of this relationship. And it had to come as a shock then in Deuteronomy when Moses is writing out God's law that he says to the people that the Lord will raise up a prophet like me, like Moses from among you, from your brothers. And it's to him you shall listen. Moses knew that there was a better prophet coming around. Moses knew that he couldn't do this forever. Someday he would be buried in the ground and he couldn't intercede on Israel's behalf. See, the truth is this morning is that Jesus is the true center, the true intercessor for his church. Verses 19 and 20, Moses both represents the people before God and warns the people in verse 20. And when Jesus came, he warned people. He gave God's word. John 17, it says, I have given them. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. See, Jesus is saying to the Father, I've spoken to them your word. I've informed them about what you desire. Jesus is described by John as the word, the message from God, full of grace and truth. Belief in him was the work that was required for anyone to have eternal life in John 6. It's not just that, it's that Jesus advocates to God on behalf of the people. If we were to kind of fast forward to the epistle of 1 John chapter 2, it's that we have an advocate before the, the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he's advocating not just uh, who you are, he's advocating his own righteousness before the throne of the Father. He's not talking about Jason's righteousness. He's not talking about the good things that Jason has done. He's talking about his own life. He's reminding the Father of His sacrificial blood poured out for me. He's interceding on my behalf. Jesus is at the center of His people. We have all kinds of confirmation of this in the New Testament. Peter tells us that God is building a spiritual house through us. He's collecting these living stones, and He's building them upon the rejected stone, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that Jesus is the head of the body, the church in Colossians chapter 1. Whatever the metaphor, the center of God's church is, is Jesus. Jesus is this better Moses. Jesus is not beset with weakness. He's not too tired. He's not too weary. He's not too full of burdens and hardship. He's not too distracted from your complaint. Jesus sees and knows and intercedes for you on behalf of his people. See, we might look at this passage and we might step away and say, oh, that's right, you know, every congregation needs a Moses. They need an elder. They need a leader. They need a pastor. No, what we need is Christ. We need Jesus to be the one interceding on our behalf day in and day out, evening after evening, portraying, loving, showing His love in sacrifice to His Father. We need His Spirit residing in us to illumine His Word and show us what He desires of us. That's what we need.
morning, we recognize that God has appointed his church to function this way. God's church has structure for a reason. Some of us kick against that. We think that anything organized cannot be spiritual. I remember uh, hearing from a church planner, and he was describing that in the early going of his church, he felt like things were more spiritual if they were written on the back of a napkin. Like it was it was more spiritual somehow if it, they kind of thought up of whatever they were doing at some greasy spoon diner. Uh, they really kicked against structure of any kind, and they really went against that. But eventually, they had to kind of recognize structure serves churches. See, God has structured his church in a way that he has placed called men to lead it as elders. Uh, we believe that he allows capable men and women to serve as deacons. And finally, he's gifted all of his people to serve with their giftedness in various capacities. You, if you are in Christ, are gifted by the Spirit to serve others around you. But at the center of all of these happenings is the person of Jesus Christ. A few observations are pertinent for us here, right? cult of personality is not community. Saying, what do you mean by cult of personality? You understand what I mean by that? There's one leader at the center of something and everyone else kind of gathers around. And as soon as that leader disappears, it's like the whole thing crumbles, right? That's not what biblical community was meant to be. The same way chaos is not community. Like where there's no structure, there's no... uh, assigned roles. There's nobody who has some kind of work or uh, defined workspace. Everyone relates directly to God and does whatever they want. That's not necessarily community either. See, our community is meant to be centered around the person of Jesus Christ, isn't it? We gather as those, like those who gather around the fire in Chicago, as it were, those who have need, who, who need grace and mercy from God. That's what brings us together. I just want to take a moment because I think it's pertinent here. There have been this growing swell of comments that I've heard, not from people here, but just recently, just out and around of, of people who describe themselves as spiritual, but don't want to be attached to any specific community. Now, I recognize I'm preaching to the choir almost literally here this morning, right? You are all here. You're worshiping with us. You're a part of a church. You're part of a local congregation. But there has been this trend in recent years to kind of push away from organized religion, as it's called, and to kind of uh, engage spiritually however I see fit on my own terms. I hear of people who are advocating a, a spirituality that's disconnected from particular local assemblies. And some say they, they say things like, you know, I can do Christianity by myself. I have the spirit. I have the word of God. I can do this on my own. I don't need brothers and sisters. Sometimes that's the statement. Another statement that I hear sometimes is uh, they, people will come and they'll say, you know, what? Uh, sometimes I wake up on a Sunday morning and I think, you know what? I, I really need a good fellowship this morning. So I'm going to go to this church over here that has great fellowship. And then the next Sunday, I need a good sermon. So I'm going to go to this uh, fellowship over here. And sometimes they wake up and say, I just need coffee, and they come to gospel community, right? See, I, I suspect that people who say such things are, are missing two essential pieces. They haven't thought that consistent participation in a local church 
actually confronts them in certain ways that they won't get if they just kind of are in and out of a local body. They're unknown to the people that reside in all of those different congregations that they participate in. They don't do Bible study. They don't do life with those people. They are just unknown. And so there's aspects of their life and their living that will go unchecked because they are not submitted to a local church body. And I just want to present that as something to consider. But secondly, another aspect that we don't often hear is that their giftings, which could serve local brothers and sisters in local church bodies, are going unused. They have no vision for the fact that God has called them to serve brothers and sisters in particular ways in particular bodies of believers, right? They don't have much of a sense of how God has gifted them and allowed them to participate in a body. See, at bottom, all they're thinking about is what they want without any consideration of what they need or what they offer. See, if God is building us into a spiritual house, like Peter says, we're stacking person on person on person, I would think that the last thing you would want to be is some separate brick disconnected from the church that God's building. I think that one of the things that's most beautiful about what God has done is he's building a people for himself, brick by brick, person by person, and he's structuring it and bringing it together as he has placed his intercessor at the, Paul says, the cornerstone. God is the architect of a glorious house. And I guarantee you that we'll all want to be a part of it. Don't miss out on this. Maybe it's not gospel community. Maybe it's some other church. I really want to press, if you're not a member here or a member somewhere else, to give it serious thought and consideration because I think the New Testament presses us to togetherness. I pray to that end. Not just that, that God would make us members. That's kind of a, a limitation of what we're talking about here. Membership is an expression of what I'm talking about. But probably the more full sense that God's inviting us into rich community with one another, and we can't do that on our own. God has given us a great intercessor in Christ, and if we want to live an isolated life, we have to recognize that we're kind of kicking against God's design. I pray this morning that God allows us a sense of the beauty of his community. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would bring us together. Not just in the formal aspects of membership or commitment or local church attendance or whatever else it might be. That you would bring us together in rich community. Lord, as you describe that we're called out ones. We are those who are gathered together through our faith in your son, Jesus. So Lord, give us a passion for your people. Give us a desire to serve those around us, to live in rich community with others. Lord, as an expression of that, I pray that you would bless our time together, our food that we're about to have as we gather together for our family meal. I pray that it would be rich with fellowship, rich with beauty and glory of Jesus Christ as we honor you with our conversation. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.